welcome to the Messy Antics Podcast, a podcast about all things Messianic Judaism. Each episode, we will be sharing our opinions as we tackle some of the biggest issues in Messianic Judaism. Now, here's your hosts, Rabbis Eric, David, Jonathan, and Toby. We're glad that you've tuned in to join with us today. I'm here with Rabbi Jonathan, Rabbi David, and Rabbi Toby, and we're going to have a conversation uh, similar to conversation we had recently where at the end of our podcast, we may not have answers, but we'll have more questions and more things to contemplate to think about. And what we're wanting to talk about is actually forgiveness and redemption and how that really looks in the body of Messiah. You know, we, we look around us, and if you read the newspapers, especially over the past few years, we've seen a lot of cases in which uh, we've seen uh, leaders fall in, for various reasons, whether it's embezzlement, whether it's uh, abuse of power, whether it's uh, uh, sexual immorality, wh- whatever happens. We've also seen a large number of leaders, whether in Messianic Judaism or Christianity, that have committed suicide as a result of their or response to their actions, to being caught in their actions. And then each of us have people in our communities, and uh, not just the, the congregation Maim Chaim community or the Bredam community, but the, each of our individual communities, where we have people who are within our body, who are there with us, whether they're brand new or they're people that have been there for a while, who for some reason or another fall into sin or came to Messiah having been involved in uh, blatant, outright sin that we would uh, have concerns about, whether it's sexual morality, abuse, drug abuse, uh, violence, all kinds of things that go on. And, And how do we look at this through God's eyes, through the eyes of the Scripture, through an understanding that a repented person is made new and whole, and that if we ask for forgiveness, God is not only faithful to forgive us, but to cleanse us, uh, while at the same time uh, having concern for our, our flocks, for our sheep, for the people in our congregation, having concern for the person themselves, uh, having concern maybe for the family or the people involved in the situation, all of these things become a, a much bigger conundrum for us to deal with. Now, I want to start out by saying that we're talking beyond the legal limits. For instance, if there is a court injunction against somebody, we're not saying we should ignore the court injunction because of forgiveness or because of grace or whatever. Uh, We had a case one time where we had a man who was coming to our synagogue And he'd been coming for quite a time to our synagogue, and one of our young people happened to invite this man's son, who had a separation order, a restraining order. Uh, He couldn't be in contact, no contact order. That's the. Mm -hmm. So the son didn't know his father was attending the synagogue, and the man had no idea that the son was being invited to the synagogue by one of his school friends. And so all of a sudden, we're in a situation where we have two people that want to worship God in our synagogue, both from pure hearts, both from a desire to worship, uh, and who do you choose? 
who who stays, who goes at that moment? What do you say, okay, the man is going to stay because he's been coming regularly and he's invested in part of the, the community? Or do you say, here's a young person who may not know Messiah at all or may not have a relationship with him that's going to have the opportunity to hear about him? And, and how do we decide? Now, I'm not talking about obeying the injunction because that, that was a given. One of the people had to leave. But how do we as leaders make a decision based upon uh, the, the belief that we have in the restorative work, the redemptive work of God, while at the same time protecting our flocks, protecting the people involved, and protecting the person that was involved because uh, there are times where somebody had been actively involved in something, maybe drug addiction, Maybe uh, they went to jail for, for theft or tax evasion or whatever. And, but then they came to the Lord, and all of that is in their past. Do we as leaders have any responsibility at all to say, to tell his story, to tell her story, mm-hmm. to share? Uh, and, and is there a, where does this become gossip? Where does this righteousness, how do we engage in this? As we do this, and this is a real thing that we deal with as leaders uh, on a regular basis because every person that attends our synagogue, including us as leaders, are fallen people who were born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and have now been reborn uh, through the working and power of the, uh, of the atonement of Messiah. So, so we want to just have a conversation about this, and, and we're not going to be naming names of people. We're not going to be calling out individuals, but, but this is a real thing. How far does the forgiveness of God go? Are there limits to how we respond to, uh, to a repentant person, to their forgiveness in Messiah? And so on beyond the legal, for instance, again, we, we talked about if there's somebody who is not allowed to be with children because of something they mm-hmm. did in their past, we're not, ask, we're not going to violate a court order in order to have them come to our congregation. There are certain people that are just going to have to watch from home or, or watch online or wherever they are to be a part of because of choices they made in their past that are still affecting their life. We're talking about situations that are outside the scope of a legal injunction or something that would, uh, would be that way. So, um, so I just want to throw out, where, what do you guys think? Where do you, uh, what do you guys, uh, and, and I know Rabbi David is going to share a little about some resources and, and where we find resources or what resources are there, what are good, or even if we look at them. So uh, you guys just jump in and, and share what your uh, what your heart is and, and what you think. I think that it, it, this is Rabbi Toby. I think it depends on the situation. I think if there's legal, I think you might have already covered that in your intro. But I think if if there's something legal uh, involved, the church or the synagogue definitely has to submit to the authority of the government, and that's in the scripture. Um. I, I I have some experience with things like this um, over over the years. Um, I mean, I grew up in the church till I was like in my 20s, but I've been in Messianic Judaism since I was 25. And, and I see I'm 43 now, so it's been 18 years. So, you know, I haven't seen everything, but I've seen some stuff. Um, let's say, let me give you a scenario of something that I witnessed that I think is a problem. Um. 
because here here what here's what I'll say for the outset. Whatever you decide to do as a leadership, you know, if you're a pastor or a rabbi, in this case, you know, we'll say it as a rabbi because um, we're speaking from a messianic perspective. But whatever you're deciding to do as uh, a leader, um, you have to understand that whatever decision you make regarding someone or someones in your congregation, you have to apply that to everybody. Right. You have to be prepared if you make a decision that it has to apply to everyone. Because uh, the situation that I saw some years ago where a married couple was attending congregation and there was, um, they started to experience problems and based on the information that the leadership had gotten, the problems were emanating from the husband. Um, I think there was some marital unfaithfulness there. Uh, the wife was in shambles, falling apart. I think the husband had, left and was just doing whatever he wanted Mm. and they were both attending the synagogue now after it all came out what was happening and they split up well the wife continued to attend and then after a period of time the husband started showing up by himself in the midst of all this leadership decided to ask the man to leave and he couldn't come he was told that he couldn't come back because uh, he had not uh, he had not sought forgiveness. He had not said that he was wrong. And when he would walk into the door, it would make uh, the wife just, you know, she would just fall apart because he was coming in and he was sitting down and he was acting like nothing. And he wasn't sitting with her. Right. He was sitting like across the way. Right. But he was acting like nothing was wrong. He was acting like he didn't do anything when he kind of torpedoed his marriage. So he was asked to leave. And what's the problem with that? I think that's normal. The problem is there was a lady in the synagogue who went through the same thing and her husband or her ex-husband and his new wife, new er wife, were, had been attending for some time and that didn't happen with them. Interesting. What's the difference might you ask? Well, um, the ex-husband and the wife were friends with people in leadership. And I know for the woman who witnessed all this happen with this woman and, and her ex-husband, you know, it was dealt with decisively. She was like, well, wait a minute. What about my situation? Right. Now, so that's a problem. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where in our earlier conversation when Rabbi David brought up policies, I think that it's yeah. important for us to have policies in place of how we're going to deal with the majority yeah. of issues so that we handle everybody with equal weights and measures. Right. So that, I'm uh, sorry. And, and so uh, – Because what that is, I just want to say, what that is is what happened that I witnessed – that is what I call a homegrown approach to a problem when I think what happens is, and I think it happens if you've been a leader of a congregation that was small and it grew. Because you see, 
when a, a, a when a rabbi or a, a congregational leader starts a congregation, it unless he's transferring into, if it, but if you're starting a congregation from the ground up, like from the grassroots, you're generally there with five people and then ten people and then twenty. And then 30, and then 40, and then maybe back down to 30, and then 40, and then 50, and then 70, and then 100, and then 200. But if you're not adapting how you're handling interpersonal issues as your congregation's growing, if you're still handling 200 people like they're 20, you are going to have such severe, colossal, chaotic issues. You cannot. We learned that recently at our own congregation. I'll use us as an example. Um, and David knows about it because when we had our Sukkot celebration, our big camp out, we had like 100 people there at one point. I mean, not 100 people camped, but at some people come and go home. Right. But we had a lot of people there. We had, a, I think it was the most we'd ever had, I think, camping. Yeah, I don't think it was quite 100, but it was definitely a lot of folks. I'm just talking about if <laughs> you include close. the in and out, yeah, it was yeah. a lot of people. We realized this year that we have got to have some policies in place because, and when I mentioned it to David's wife, uh, the Rabitzin, Danny, I said, I said, Danielle, we, and she, she immediately, because Danielle's very wise, she says, you're right. There's not 10 of us out here anymore. So we have to have some top down policies right. because we had some issues arise. You cannot handle a hundred 200, 300 people like they're 10, 20, 30 right. people. So, and that just goes into what Rabbi Eric said about, because it's this homegrown approach. And that's a homegrown approach, which is, these are my friends. I'm not going to treat them that way. But those two people over there are having marital issues and the husband's being inappropriate. Well, he just needs to go. Well, what about these people? Well, no, they go to, they have dinner with you. They go to Wild Wings with you. That's the problem. Right. That's and, a problem. And, yeah, and it, it becomes a thing where... Is it my family? Is it my friends? Is it my leadership team? Is it someone that I don't mind if they leave, or is it someone that I don't want to leave? Yeah. Uh, these, these are real things that we deal with that unless we have a, a set policy that says this is what happens. Right. If this, and, and I think that's why Matthew 18 is written in there. If, if somebody is involved in a sin, you go to them one-on-one. Then the next step of the policy, you go to them with two other witnesses. And then if they don't repent, then you ask them to leave the congregation. That there, that's a biblical policy for congregational uh, correction right. that is, is written that needs to be equally applied to everyone regardless of right. their, uh, who it is. So I think uh, part of this conversation, because we – you know, the, uh, we talk about this from time to time. The name of our podcast is the Messy Antics Podcast. And one of the things that we're, we try to focus on is what are some of the crazy things or some of the, the antics, some of the, the um, specific to Messianic Judaism issues that need to be addressed. And not everything is like a negative thing or whatever, but the reality is Messianic Judaism as a whole and especially in the congregational life aspect of that, is very reactive rather than proactive. And part of that, I think, is, is two-part. And we talked about some of this earlier before we started recording. Part of it is two-part. Part of it is that most Messianic synagogues, and, and Rabbi Toby kind of touched on this a little bit, most Messianic synagogues are 40 people or less in attendance right. and will stay there for their entire existence. 
that 40 people may rotate. You know, they may have five or 10 that are there forever and then the rest rotate, but, but it's, it's, you know, 40 people or less their entire existence. And there's reasons that that kind of tends to be a thing as opposed to growth, but that's a whole other day's discussion too. Um, but the reality is, is that because Messianic Judaism tends to be a, um, uh, a, a thing in which we don't necessarily equip and send people out to start congregations, but rather people realize a need and just do it without any real help or structure or foundation or equipping or anything like that. And we also tend to be very tribal. What's ours is ours. And we don't often equip it into it. We don't go, Hey, we figured out this really great system these really great uh, policies and, and, and procedures that work, can we just give this to you? We don't just put it out there, right? Uh, as a, an example of this, in, in the other direction, Rabbi Eric does a um, uh, six-week Hebrew class, and, and the premise to it is teach anybody to read Hebrew in six weeks, and, and that's right. it, right? And so he does it online. It's a, a Zoom meeting or whatever, and, and he's had some really good success with it. A number of people have gone through it. He's got different layers of it for you know intro and or beginning and intermediate and so on, and, uh, and and what have you. And I told him uh, a few months back, we were chatting, was like, hey, now that you've had some time to see how this plays out, uh, you should package this and give it to other Messianic rabbis. Not, you know, because it, it is something that is a kind of a, a lack of a better way of wording it, a side hustle for him. He does charge for the classes because his time is in it. He's putting energy and effort into it. Right. And I said, you should take this and package it and give it to other Messianic rabbis that they can then do the exact same thing. Uh, add a little extra income into their own family's uh, 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 pockets, but also further their congregation's reach and so on, which is something he's working on. But that I say all of that to say that we are not necessarily great at going to other and say, hey, we have a great system. Here we go. But also part of that is that because we're reactive uh, and because Messianic Judaism is still small and is trying to – segment ourselves out as not being another church or not being the church like we're going back to what the first century was and what have you we often are afraid of using the church's uh experience and knowledge and policies and programs they've developed out of fear that you know hey that's their thing we're, we're doing our own thing it doesn't fit here right and so we we have often this fear of gleaning from the church because what does the church have to offer us like we know better we know it all what does the church have and, and honestly the, the church has a lot to offer us in right. fact and one of the resources that rabbi eric uh mentioned i was going to throw out there is from uh church of the highlands in north alabama well they're all over alabama but north alabama think what you want to think about church of highlands i don't really care that's between you and, and god or whatever that's not an issue what i'm suggesting to you, uh, to our audience, especially if you are a leader of a Messianic congregation, is Church of the Highlands is very good at policies and procedures. Uh, they they have worked up a tremendous, very successful uh, uh, system and systems for their church um, over years of experience and effort and, and growth and so on. If you go to resources.churchofthehighlands.com, and I will link it in the, the, the show notes, resources.churchofthehighlands.com. Highlands Resources is what this, this site is called. It is all of their resources, all of their documentation, all of their policies and procedures that they use over the years. Glean from it. Take what you think is beneficial and, and leave what you think may not be alone, but use these resources. They are free. It's a free login for you and your congregational staff. Free login. Use whatever you want. They've got videos to implement. They've got short courses to teach you how to do this. 
it is very effective. That doesn't just because you're taking something and gleaning something from a mega church doesn't mean you're trying to make your synagogue a mega synagogue. Um, not that there is or isn't anything wrong with that either, but that doesn't just learn. Like I, I Rabbi Toby and I talk about it a lot. Uh, I, uh, I were working at the moment on trying to develop a B'nai Mitzvot program, like uh, intentional courses and such for our congregation. And one of the things that uh, when we first started talking about it that I said was, look, I have zero desire to reinvent the will. There are people that already do this and do this well. Let's just find what they use, take it. We will rebrand it for our stuff. Give them the credit if want. That's fine. I don't care. But but let's. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's already people that are doing it well. Let's just glean from them. And and I'm. I think I'm part of a generation of messianic rabbis that we're comfortable with that. Yeah, we we actually uh, and we're share, going to share the, our B'nai Mitzvot first thing policy. tomorrow morning. No, no. And actually, the first thing I tomorrow morning. Next morning. No. <laughs> I contacted the the lady who's in charge of our B'nai Mitzvot program, and she her curriculum is not in a, a position where she can just share it so she's rewriting it so she can get it so that it's actual followable instead of just personal but we have at, a, at our congregation we have policies for our worship team that we share with whoever calls and asks for it we have policies for our dance team we have policies for our shabbat school for food we, for, <clears throat> for how we do our food and our own egg team we have all of those things which we readily share with whoever wants them because we bounce them. Now, they, we don't expect anybody's going to use them word for word as we do, but it gives you a, an, a document you can work from to adapt. Same thing with our bylaws, the bylaws that we wrote for our synagogue. We make them available to whoever wants them. Now, they may adapt them to fit their community, but at least they're not starting from scratch and trying to find everything. And one of those things that we're talking about in this redemptive, in this forgiveness, in this restoration thing, is that we live in a world where background checks are a requirement, especially for running, like our, nobody works with our children unless they've gone through a background check. But we also gleaned from not only other, other congregations, synagogues, and churches, but also universities and businesses to come up with a uh, policy for background. How are we going to deal with it? What is our, for instance, let's say you have somebody that comes in and you have a policy that says uh, you can't work with our children if you've ever had a drug offense. Well, that sounds really easy, but what if you have somebody who's 60 years old that's been living for the Lord for 45 years, but when he was 15, he got busted with marijuana right. that's now legal <clears throat> depending in, on where you in are. many states. <laughs> and so he has – so if you do a background check far enough, you find his arrest for marijuana, and that makes it that this person is no longer qualified for serving in your community because he had an arrest for a drug offense way back when he was 15. So, so when you set a policy, you have to set a policy, we're going back X amount of years. We're going back for these. We're looking for these certain things. Right. We're, you know, these are so so that you know what it is, and then you can apply that policy across the board to everyone. Where you might have somebody who just got out of jail for being a drug dealer, and they would not qualify. But if you didn't have a policy, they would be treated equally right. to somebody who was 15 when they had a drug offense, and now they're 60. And they've been walking with the Lord for 45 years, and it hasn't been any kind of issue. 
So you have to have these, these tools, these policies. And again, as Rabbi David said, there are people that have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to have lawyers help them to write policies that are good policies that you can glean from rather than trying to reinvent the wheel. And the advantage of gleaning from those people that have prepared in advance is there's a lot of things that you might not even think of that they've already documented and went through to use. And these things help us to then be fair in how we deal with things. Um, How do you deal with divorced people? You know, how long does someone have to be divorced before they can be used in your congregation? How long do they have to be, uh, or can they be remarried after the divorce? And and how do you deal with that? Um, How do you deal with people, for instance, and this happens all the time, is you have a couple in your congregation that are dating. You have a man and a woman that are dating in your congregation, and they break up. And now they have hurt feelings. And neither one of them want the other one to be in synagogue. Who keeps the congregation. Right. Who gets, yeah, who, who you know, they, they, they broke up. Who gets custody of the congregation? So we're, like, going to develop a prenup for dating and courting individuals <laughs> right. well, in case one of you decides to. Well, it just, the, the thing is you have to have a policy in place mm-hmm. for handling these things because these are real-life issues that come up that we need to be aware of before yeah. they happen right. because if we're trying to react to them instead of being proactive, we're going to make bad decisions and hurt people. Yeah, and those do cause problems because there was two uh, – there was a young couple at one of the congregations I attended that dated and they broke up and it was it was acrimonious. I don't know. Awkward. It was, kind yeah. But the problem is, is that it was it – was, they were teenagers, like right. 17, 18 is what I mean. Right. They were teenagers. They broke up, and not the awkwardness between them became a feud between their respective families. Mm-hmm. And it not only tore through the congregation, yeah. they were fighting on the Israel trip. Yeah, I, which is – and this, I didn't this go could on, be a whole – But it was a whole thing. It could be a whole, nother, a whole yeah. other conversation, but like – I'm a big fan of, like, if you're going to be here at this particular congregation, whichever one, you know, like, people say, like, oh, you can't interfere with people's dating lives when I'm around. I'm like, yeah, you can. (laughs) Like, you can say, like, you know, you can can at least teach, here's how we advise Mm -hmm. you parents to lead your children in dating and courting relationships. That will result in... Even if it doesn't produce a marriage, yeah. it will result in a um, a just going parting ways, and there won't have been such a um, soul tie. Yeah, such an emotional attachment yeah. that results in these feuds that are really unnecessary. Um, yeah, and I think the key is uh, is having a a leadership team that's all on the same page. Like for instance, yeah. if there's a longstanding issue between a couple people or if there is some long-standing issue if there's some kind of issue that the rabbi knows about or an elder knows about or somebody knows about you know and it's it's not i'm not talking about little things like oh you know this person gets on this person's nerves and they kind of had an awkward interaction that's not what i'm talking about but i'm talking about if there's a long-standing personal interpersonal problem in your congregation if there's a person that's behaving inappropriately and it, or, or, or something like that uh, the leadership team has to be on the same page. You can't have 
a long-standing issue going on, and then and the rabbi knows about it, or an elder knows about it, and then something blows up, um, and none of the other leadership team knows about it. You know, and I told my story before we hit record about how I was having an issue with a person, and I told one member of the leadership because I was following the chain of command, but because they didn't share it, this was a long-standing issue. When something happened, it was a member of the worship team. When I had to ask this guy to step down. The, the the nope. Everybody else was like, "Well, Toby flew off the handle and pulled the trigger on this guy," and that, you know. I'm so there has to be everybody's got to be on the same page, but you got to have um, you got to have the leader, the leadership team. Everybody has to be on the same page. Everybody has to like, for instance, um, you. I'll give you another just example of one time when I was in a security team meeting. And, you know, what is the most common thing? I'll just pose this question. What is the most common thing that's going to happen in a synagogue? In a security issue? In a security issue. It's are a domestic you, violence situation. Right, the most, are you going to have a man with an what's, – what's more likely to happen? Are you going to have a man come in with an AK-47, or are you going to have someone's child try to crawl up on stage in the middle of a worship set? What's more common? Uh, the someone's child. Right, the child. Right, I remember bringing that up in a security team meeting because we had a particular family when I was a worship leader. The kids were getting up on stage, and the, the, the mom was just standing there and smiling like she was, you know. Like I can tell I'm like, okay, this kid paints on the wall, and you think it's a Picasso. Like that's, what, that's, that's the kind of parent we're dealing with, just like, oh, wow. Instead of realizing this kid's disrupting the service. When I brought that up as the worship leader at this congregation, the response is, we're not talking about things like that. We're talking about serious threats. And I'm like, the most common thing for you to deal with are weekly disruptions. So everybody's got to be on the same page. And you can put somebody on that. You can put somebody on eliminating distractions, and you can have somebody on larger threats. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So – it, it, it's just nobody wants to deal it, it's i think a, a bigger overarching issue is you have people in leadership and congregations right now that don't like dealing with problems they don't want to deal with problems right which is why they don't have policies because policies recognize problems or at least the possibility that something could happen someday that nobody forethought right yeah. so kind of so, what you're saying is in order to have forgiveness redemption and restoration within a congregation you have to have a method mm-hmm. and a system yes. for leading to that it can't mm-hmm. just be a an off the wall like oh brother we forgive yeah. you whatever it was yeah, absolutely so we let, have people i'm sorry and let's be honest it's not like that is a far-fetched reality because we've got an entire book called the bible that is almost exclusively policies and procedures right you know rabbi eric brought up matthew 18 earlier which is the policies and procedures for fixing relationships right Right. we go to uh galatians 6 i know god forbid we use scripture but we go to galatians 6 right uh brothers and sisters verse one brothers and sisters if someone is caught doing something wrong or uh you who are directed by the ruach by the spirit restore such a person in a spirit of gentleness looking closely at yourself so you are not tempted also bear one another's burdens and in this way you fulfill the Torah of moses for if any one thinks he is something when he is nothing is fooling himself rather let each one examine his own work 
Then he will have pride in himself alone and not in comparison to others, for each one will carry his own load. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that it's necessary for restoration, right? But obviously there are boundaries. Like we talked earlier, you know, if you've got an individual in the congregation or wanting to be in the congregation who, uh, you know, God forbid uh, you find out is a sex offender. Like, mm-hmm. and, and, you know, there are varying levels of that, you know, and, and what have you. But God forbid he's, he's let's just assume he's the worst kind of sex offender. Like how he got out of prison, nobody knows. But um, worst kind of sex offender, he's on a lifelong uh, offenders list, can never get off of it, right? I believe in perfect faith. In a restoration of redemption, that God's desire is to restore and redeem everyone, right? But I also understand that there are still earthly consequences to our actions, right? And so if you're in that situation, you can't be mad at a congregation if they tell you, hey, here's our website. You can watch our service online from home. Please do not be here in person. We have children. We have too many children. You're not able, not that there's too many children, but you know, you cannot be here. Why? Because as Rabbi Eric said, there are legal uh, guidelines for how you now have the option of living your life. And I'm not trying to be mean to you. I'm not trying to push you away. I'm not trying to reject you. I'm not trying to say that you're not worthy of redemption. You are. And I want to see that in your life. But you cannot be in this building or at any of our in-person events uh, because this is a problem. This is a choice you made. That's, right. you know, and that's not to, to crap on anybody or anything like that. It's just this is a reality. We make choices. Those choices have earthly consequences. Yes, redemption, forgiveness, you know, uh, uh, salvation, all available. And in God's eyes, those things are gone when we repent. He's taking care of them. But that doesn't mean that they don't still follow us here on earth that we have to still deal with. Right, so and, and we, we have people that we deal with that um, – are like that, that these are people that the law precludes Mm -hmm. from attending our congregation. There are other people, for instance, at our congregation, we have people that used to be drug dealers, but there's no prohibition or legal ramifications. We have people that were in various aspects of adult entertainment that are members of our congregation, they're part of our congregation. We have people that were homeless that uh, you know, all kinds of things. We have people that were in jail. We have people, there, there's a whole plethora, and, and we have people that are from all kinds of things. And, and when we look at somebody, we have to look, we have a predetermined in our minds sometimes which sins are worse. Yeah, in, we want to zero in on. We want to zero in. So somebody who was a, uh, a, a shoplifter, we look at differently than somebody who was in the adult entertainment. Somebody who sleeps with a woman, we look at differently than a woman who got pregnant out of wedlock. Somebody, we have different ways that in, our, in our humanity we look at these things. But through faith in Messiah, through biblical ethics, we can't look at those things differently in that way. We have to look at those things as these people are forgiven and then welcomed into our community mm-hmm. And we have to defend their redemptive uh, life against accusations just as we would anybody else. As if it was our children or our grandchildren that were being accused of these things. Yep, and equal weights and measures doesn't mean that every single situation is equal and can be weighed and measured against every single. But I will say this. um, I have learned over the years 
that redeemed and restored former unlicensed pharmaceutical representatives have some of the coolest fireside stories. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> I, be- I believe that. I was in a meeting one time, just a side note, where a DEA agent and one of the people he was investigating were both, they both had become born again, they both, he was no longer a DEA agent, the other guy was no longer an unregistered pharmaceutical distribution a- agent, but, and now they had become friends. Is that a drug dealer? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but they had become friends of, in the faith, but they were both sitting at right. a table talking with each other about what God had done in their life and the miracles, and, but they were also talking about their history together yeah. pre their born-again experience. Right. Uh, the just, previous it, chase. Right. It's, it's an interesting. They were running the race before, and now they're running the race after, but yeah. uh, different end game. So here's a here's a um, a question I'll pose with um, regards to like particularly those individuals who the law actually may pre- prevent them from being uh, around, uh, let's say children for uh, per mm-hmm. se. Because we we it's, let's not pretend we don't have some of those. We do. We have mm-hmm. we have several people who are uh, fit in that camp. Um, do we? Should we? Could we um, provide? a ministry almost like a prison ministry but you know like on the outside of prison like prison ministry but on the other side of prison on the other side of the cell um to folks like that like meeting spaces bible studies you know even smaller shorter versions of services you know to those individuals like like and uh, granted we're you're never most congregations are never going to see more than a handful of yeah um, at a time, but like if you're in a big city, unfortunately, area, most congregations never know how many they actually. That, have that's true seen. too. Sometimes, yeah. Um, but like if you're in a big city area, big yeah. metropolitan area, like it's possible you may have a good, yeah. you know, dozen even uh, folks who may fit in that category. So you know, that, I think that would be another yeah. question of policy. Like, could you could you provide something like that? One of the things I've seen uh, some congregations do, and and again, this goes back to gleaning from churches. Uh, one of the things I've seen some some churches do is they'll say, like, look, you can't be at our in-person services. Uh, however, our midweek Bible studies, there are no children. You're welcome to come to those. Right. Uh, you know, men's events, there are no children. You can come to those. Uh, you know, that kind of thing where they're they're still including them or, or, or leaving room for inclusion in community life. Right. But in terms of their experience uh with the the service aspect the congregational service aspect there you know you can watch online you know if you want to get a viewing party of people together so you can feel like you've got community that's fine um i i would say to to your question like it's i don't think it's necessarily a, a terrible idea to come up with something like that but much like prison ministry um it's got to have the right person or right people running oh, it sure and it can't it's one of those things that i think what ends up happening, especially in the small congregation atmosphere, which you know, small congregations realistically anything two hundred people or less, right? What what tends to happen in the small congregation atmosphere is when something when when the the community wants to launch something new, a new program, a new ministry, a new whatever, it's the the pastor or the rabbi's job. It's the family of the pastor or rabbi's job. It's you know it kind of falls on everybody expects them to do it, um, but. The reality is uh, it, it can't be 
uh, something that just falls on the pastor right. or the rabbi's shoulder. It's got to no, be something I, that like there are people. Right. Yeah, and, I agree. And if you're going to do it, you have to make sure that you you need to talk to lawyers and figure out what's the best way to establish this. How right. can we go- safeguard our community, safeguard our name, safeguard this, and do in intentional intensive yeah, training with those programs from yeah. other people that have done this yeah. right. do intentional intensive trainings with yeah. those that are going to be operating in that specific sphere right. of ministry to protect them because there's look there are plenty of people who uh, find redemption and forgiveness but never find deliverance right sure. and, and it's a personal choice that that's the case but it, it is a thing that happens, that they, they never truly break free of the spiritual bondage they've been in. They've found forgiveness, repentance, and maybe they strive really hard to maintain. And so there is a uh, spiritual warfare aspect of that, yeah. that you also have to train that ministry team uh, and, and be covering that ministry team in prayer with regards to um, and, and care for them. Like if that is a very um, intense atmosphere to be in right and if you've got people there like it now it may not be the rabbi or pastor's job to be the one doing that but it is their job to make sure on a regular basis they're doing you know mental health checks and such on those individuals and spiritual life checks and discipleship right. and what have you um the, to make sure that they're they're okay that they're doing good that they're walking same thing's true for people in prison ministry right. and i think a lot of times we we forsake that like you know congregations will develop prison ministries which are great but what are you doing for the life of those in that ministry? Right. Um, is it, oh, come on Saturday or Sunday and you get filled up in the worship service? Or is there something more intentional that's being done to sow into them as well? Right. Because that is a, though it's a very worthy and admirable ministry outlet, it is also a very very spiritually draining and, and mentally um, uh, hard thing to do. I've, right. I've been there. I've done it. It is not right. always the easiest thing in the world to do yeah deliverance ministry yeah. that stuff is is very very challenging and and training one of the reasons that um not the only reason not mm-hmm. the primary reason but one of the reasons that teaching restoration and forgiveness and and all is important uh, as we deal with it with our community is that if we don't establish policies and Uh, discipleship to people where they understand how this works there's going to come a time where it's the leader that does something that is looking for forgiveness and i'm not or is accused of something right or you know accused but i'm talking about somebody i'm not talking about like falling into adultery or becoming a drunk or an alcoholic or whatever but some decision they made that wasn't the wisest wasn't the best wasn't and then you go and ask for forgiveness you you want to receive forgiveness from your congregation from your community from i'll give you an example that happened just last week we had a guy that came to our synagogue last week um to to visit he'd been there before and he looked exactly like somebody we had thrown out of our congregation because he was harassing the women in our congregation who was dressed like it, wore the same hat, looked very much like. So our safety team met him at the door and said, look, you've been asked not to be here. Uh, well, it turned out it wasn't that guy. Oh, gosh. It was a different guy who just looked very, very much like him. Well, I had to, as the rabbi, 
uh, reach out and say, I'm sorry, we made a mistake. We, we were wrong. We made a, a bad decision. Our safety team, out of honest intent, uh, did this. Uh, and, and so I, I reached out to, to him uh, to do that. Now, if I expect, because I'm going to make mistakes, our, our safety team is going to make mistakes, our teachers are going to make mistakes, our worship leaders, people are going to make mistakes. But we can't expect our congregation to understand how to forgive and have a restored relationship if we don't have policies and set in place and act on it with them to right. where they experience it so then they can give it back mm-hmm. when it when it's appropriate. Yeah, I think policies, as you mentioned, uh, Rabbi Eric, go a long way. Uh, for instance, when Brooke, uh, and again, I'll use this congregation as an example, when, when Brooke took over the worship team last year, it's like one of the first things I told her. I said, you are going to need to come up with some policies because what happens if you don't? Uh, I mean, I remember having to do the same thing uh, when Brooke and I led worship together. I don't, I'm not involved in the worship team, but right. when we led worship together, there had to be policies. The reason why is if you don't, well, people will think they can skip practice and still play on Shabbat uh, morning. Uh, people will... Um, do things like you know i had a guy um when i emailed music out to the group he would email corrections to the group but would not include me on the loop and those kinds of things uh all the way down to someone may dress inappropriately on stage um those kinds of those kinds of situations so you have to have things in place because if you don't I mean, and, and, and it has to be that, for instance, you know, in youth, there's an age, there's an age, you know, um, requirement and, 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 you know, people age out of youth and they, sometimes they try to come back, you know, or you'll have people 22 years old wanting to be in youth group and, 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 you know, so you have to have these, these policies. And I remember, uh, a, a pretty serious one is that when my uh, when my mother uh, uh, you know we were at a congregation and she was put over the women's counseling ministry and she was the synagogue uh, paid for her phone and was she was given a phone a synagogue for women's counseling phone here's your phone go to it that's it so what was happening well my mom didn't have any ramification uh, any um, specifications parameters. parameters that's it she didn't have any parameters so she would have counseling sessions with women that were going for four hours Oof. women were calling her at one two three four in the morning when my mom was asleep which most human beings are at one two three four in the morning when she wouldn't pick up the phone she'd wake up the next morning to angry texts from these hurting women who were like where are you when i need you right. and so what did my mom start doing she started answering the phone at Two, three, four in the morning. Oh gosh! And uh, it got to a point where I had to advocate for her. I said, "Hey, this is what's happening to my mother, and I can't even have a normal conversation with her right. because she's so." And she, it got to. And I'll tell you to this Tense. day, to this day, my mother will not keep her cell phone on her, and I guarantee, and I know it's because of that. And the response was, "Whoa, wait a minute. Whoa, what? Um, okay. In other words." Let's park the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. A person has fallen. Let's just load them up and take them to the morgue. You know? So it was, well, 
sessions only need to be an hour. Women can't call your mother until uh, after 8 p.m. or 7 p.m. and things like that. Oh, yeah, we need to do this. And I'm like, she had been doing this for months. So that's what I'm saying. Like, you can't just – leadership can't assign somebody to a task or put someone over a ministry and not have policies. Right. And not only that, again, as I said earlier, policies that adapt as things as, – as more people walk into your doors. You cannot yep. deal with – Five people with twenty people, like you do five. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and right. with that, when you're setting up policies for new things, you sit down with the, you know, for instance, your mom. You, you know, staff should sit down with uh, her and say, okay, we're putting you in this role. So, what do you need from us? How can we equip you? What can we do for you? What are the the, the are the parameters you see would be beneficial? Are there like include that individual in mm-hmm. those, especially if it's a new ministry that the congregations never had to think about before, right? You you don't just throw somebody to the wolves and then hope they float and and, and that's it. I mean, hope that they survive, right? Um, the 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 same is true that as those policies kind of materialize, as the the needs of the ministry evolve. And those fluid, you know, the the fluidity to developing policies occur. You don't retroactively punish people for policies that didn't exist because something new came up that you finally had to consider and needed to put into place. And in those policies, you need to actually have policies for entry. For instance, if you're going to start a counseling ministry, then you might want to put a policy that says you have to be a licensed family Mm -hmm. counselor in order to be in this ministry. If you're on the worship team, like our worship team, there's a four-month uh, entry or, or you know. Yeah, it uh, should be. To get in, you, you start out by sitting for a month and watching the worship team practice and being at the practice and mm-hmm. seeing how things go. And, mm-hmm. and then the next month you're there and you can start doing a little more and in, in involving and, and doing that. But we've had people over the years, now this has been a long time ago, somebody came up and said, Hey, I just bought a harp, and I'd like to be on the worship team. <laughs> and and I said, well, how long have you played the harp? Well, I don't. Well, then you can't be on the worship team until right. you learn to play, right. a- and those kind of things. So there are there are guidelines for for entry. The 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 on ramp to get into a ministry should have guidelines so that people know this is the expectation just to be a part of this. The same way that we have membership requirements that are in policy. You have to read these books and do this and do that. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I've had people say, I don't really like to read. Do I have to read those books in order to be a member? Yes, you do. Uh, You know, those kind of things. It's just setting a policy that then becomes the way everything operates. And that way, if something doesn't happen right you have a policy standard to set it against all the way through what's going on in the ministry, and it allows you to then also set meters in place that demonstrate fruits of repentance Mm -hmm. for people that are being restored. Yeah, and I remember one time, I remember when when we first, uh, you know, at one of my congregations, it was when I first became a worship leader, uh, we had a um, we had a situation where um, we had just built the worship team, so it very much was very kind of we were like a family, you know. And but again, you know, started having some problems with people being you know running late or just not showing up to practice and stuff and things like that. Or as families do, yeah, as families do. So I started to put some things in place, and one guy came up to me and said, "I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, man, if we're not going to run this thing like a family, I'm out of here." And I'm like, deuces. I mean, what what's the problem with having some rules? 
Because the fact of the matter is if you can't follow rules from people you see, that means you're probably not following rules from the God you can't. Right. You know? And not only that, but families have rules. Yeah. Like, I, I've got kids, and uh, we have rules for our kids. There are things they're allowed to do and things they aren't allowed to do. There are right. places they're allowed to go and places they aren't allowed to go. Right. Uh, and, and same is true between my, you know, my wife and I and how we interact with our kids and whatever. Like, there's nothing wrong with rules and policies. Right. Um, and there should be a humility to recognize the value of, uh, of submitting to yeah. those policies if you're going to be a part of something. I mean, we had somebody years ago that came to the synagogue. Uh, they, they called us up and said, hey, you know, I'm moving down from Michigan. I feel like God told me to come to this congregation. Can I come visit? Yeah, absolutely. So he comes and visits, and um, our membership process was a little different back then, and we would make an announcement every week, if you're interested in membership, see Rabbi David. He'll tell you what the process is. And he comes up to me afterwards. He goes, Rabbi, uh, I'd like to talk to you about membership. What do I need to do? And so I laid out a membership process for him, and he goes, oh, I've got to wait four months before I can ask for membership. I was like, yeah, it gives time for you to get to know us and determine if we're a good fit for you and vice versa. And, uh, and he goes, but, but Rabbi, I feel like God, God told me to come here. Like he gave me this congregation by name. I feel like I'm, why, why do I have to, to wait to be a member if this is what God told me to do? I said, are you, are you telling me you don't think God knew what our membership process was when he told you to come here? Um, and that was the last we ever saw him. But the, uh, the, the reality is, is we have to be willing to be humble and submit. If God is directing us towards something, if he's directing you to be on a worship team, be right. humble and submit to that worship team. Right. If there's a time frame that they want something done, you do it in that time frame. Mm-hmm. If you are joining the Chazanim team, if you're joining security, if you're joining uh, Shabbat school, if you're joining whatever it is, don't get offended because you have to do the exact same things that everybody else on that ministry team does. Um, and as the the time progresses and things evolve and leadership realizes there's needs to add new structure and, and organization and policies and procedures, don't be offended like they're coming at you because everybody is held to the same standard. And so just be patient and and uh, and be humble and be willing to submit. If if God puts you in the, the community you're involved in, trust that God's in control. And uh, and if you have questions, hopefully your rabbi, your pastor, your leadership are are approachable and are willing to sit down and talk with you. Um, so I'm sure that there are far more questions to be had, far more conversations to 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 go through with regard to this issue. But <clears throat> this is at least uh, a way that we can get this conversation started and rolling. Um, and with that, uh, please again take uh, advantage of resources that are available from uh, from congregations, from from churches, from SNA synagogues that are already out there. Again, resources.churchofthehighlands.com, resources.churchofthehighlands.com. Uh, I personally have a number of rabbis that uh, I personally glean from that on a regular basis, when, when I'm thinking about something new, thinking about adding something in, we'll call them up or email them and say, hey, I'm interested in doing this. Is this something you already do? Awesome. How do you do it? Because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. I just want to, to glean from. So please, if you don't have that network, if you don't have those those trusted people you can lean on, build that network. Plug yourself in. If you're not part of a, a congregational organization, if there's not a, a uh, uh, covering over your community, whether it's a denomination or it's a, an association or whatever, um, find one. There, there is so much value in being in community with others doing what you do and being able to glean from and benefit and bless into it as well. So with that said, thanks for joining us, uh, and we will talk with you guys again next week. 
Thank you for listening to the Messy Antics Podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you can be notified every time we drop a new episode. And be sure to follow and interact with us on social media at Messy Antics Podcast.